Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 364, Reconciliation. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Anna, Mikan, and Robert for signing up already. Complex societies are able to do incredible things. By having an interconnected civilization, with people from all over the place contributing to it, people are able to specialize. And that specialization allows for entire classes of people who can do things that would be impossible if they had to meet their own basic needs by themselves. Scientists, engineers, artists, even podcasters, we are all possible thanks to living in a complex society. Furthermore, the things we have in our homes, the flavors that we take for granted, the books we read, even the ideas that drive our conversations at the kitchen table, all of them are made possible by, and therefore impacted by, the complexity and interconnectedness of our civilization. It really is amazing when you sit down and think about it. But that degree of specialization and interconnectedness can have downsides too. Often, those efficiencies that are built into the system will also lead to widespread exploitation. The structure of a complex society can also allow power to accumulate to a point where most people suffer a lower standard of living, while only those at the very top see the true benefits of the structure. We see this happen again and again. And in our show, the most stark example was when the general health of the Britons collapsed as soon as the Romans annexed Britain into their civilization. But honestly, there are all kinds of ways that this marvel of human development can turn against us. And when complex and interconnected societies encounter serious crises and then fail to rise to the challenge, the damage that average people suffer is often amplified. That specialization, which made the impossible possible, becomes a vulnerability. Take food, for example. For most of us, the food that we eat comes from a grocery store, which was transported there via truck from some distributor, which got to the distributor by ship, plane, or a different truck, which probably, eventually, came from a farm, sometimes several farms. If any part of that chain breaks, you might find yourself going hungry, and there wouldn't be much you could do about it. And there's another kind of risk that comes from all the complexity and interconnectedness it becomes possible that the crises of people who live far away with no direct connection to your life can suddenly become your crises. That interconnection goes both ways. It's a lesson that Britain in the Middle Ages found itself learning over and over again, which is why the British History Podcast keeps talking about Scandinavia. The fact is that the events in Scandinavia changed the course of British history in ways both big and small both obvious and subtle. Case in point, when King Magnus the Good died, and King Harald Hedrada claimed Norway, and King Swain Estrasen claimed Denmark, they went to war with each other. And by doing that, England was shot down a trajectory that shaped the next thousand years. You see, Magnus was preparing for the invasion of England when he died. And so his death, and the subsequent bloody war between Norway and Denmark, meant that that invasion never happened. If Magnus had lived, and he carried out his conquest, English history, including the English language, might be very different right now. 
And so you might think that the death of King Magnus was really good news for someone like King Edward. But here's the thing about Magnus's planned conquest of England. He had drawn a huge number of ships and even more warriors to his banner in preparation for that invasion. And now he was dead and the conquest was off. So all these warriors were all dressed up with nowhere to go. Well, sort of. Some of them definitely had places to go because many of them were subjects to either the Norse or the Danish crown. And now that Norway and Denmark were at war, they were likely being called to fight for king and country. But not everyone was a soldier linked to Harold or Swain Estherson, and not everyone was eager to throw themselves into their bloody war for supremacy. Which meant that there were now large numbers of violent warriors milling about Scandinavia, with access to longships, and who, thanks to political destabilization, weren't being watched too closely by their overlords. And so, the newly unemployed raiders gathered into fleets and went job hunting. Two raiders in particular, Lothing and Erling, hatched a plan. While Magnus was obviously not going to go to England, they saw no reason why they shouldn't. So the two entrepreneurs waited for winter to pass, which was a smart move. The winter of 1047 was horrific. You might remember from last episode that England was dealing with a massive famine as a result of this winter. And it was so bad that the effects echo through the Chronicle itself. I mean, at this point, the scribes just start listing off the names of churchmen who died. And then, right at the end, after they told us what day Easter landed on, because that's important, the scribes remembered that, oh yeah, there were some other people in England besides those who worked for the church. And so they quickly added, quote, And there was all over England very great loss of men this year also, end quote. And if that also doesn't tell you how little the scribes cared for the vast majority of people who lived and died on this island, I don't know what will. But eventually, the winter passed, and things improved, and when it did, in 1048, Lothan, Erling, and their crews boarded their ships, all 25 of them, and they set sail. At about this same point, Poor Unferth and Hilda were probably just trying to get their lives back together. At this point, average people would have been tending what livestock survived the winter, carefully planting the seeds that they had to keep from eating, and staring down the barrel of a long growing season, with the only hope of relief coming months away. Things for them weren't going to feel safe until they had a good harvest in the fall. I mean, they might have supplemented their diet with fish and hunting if, and this was a big if, their lord allowed them to do so. Otherwise, this year was going to be really lean. And then, in the distance, ships appeared. A massive fleet of ships. And they made their way straight for the coast of Sandwich. Unferth and Hilda didn't stand a chance. They could either stay and try and defend what little they had, in which case they almost certainly would be killed or enslaved, or they could flee and abandon their farm, in which case their chances of surviving to harvest would plummet. There were no good options for them. Conversely, for the Vikinger crews who were leaping out of their longships and rushing inland, they had an embarrassment of choices. The winter might have been hard, but the fact was that England was quite wealthy. In addition to having fertile lands and a bustling trade network, 
there was another aspect that made England, especially the wealthier estates of England, ideal targets for raiders. For centuries now, the English nobility had been tasked with raising tributes and Danegelds due to the numerous invasions and raids that they'd been subject to. And as a result of this, the aristocracy and their officials had become masters of taxation. So the English didn't just have a good position when it came to agriculture, livestock, and trade. Those in charge became very, very good at extracting every last penny from those ventures. So despite the bad winter, the raiders still had plenty they could steal, provided, of course, that they went to the places where that wealth was concentrating. And thanks to a poor local defense, it appears they did. And on the way there, they also grabbed anything else they could get their hands on. They took goods, they took treasure, they took anyone they thought they could sell at a slave market. They took everything. In fact, we're told that the raiding was so severe that few reports of the incident were even made because hardly anyone was left to make a report. Next, Lothan and Erling went to Thanet. But Thanet was different. They had long experience with raiders. And they also probably had at least some amount of warning of what was going on. So when the Vikinger fleet arrived, the local Ferd was waiting. More than that, it appears from the record that some portion of the English navy was mustered and was working in concert with the local Ferd, because we're told that the local people of Thanet resisted the Viking attacks from both land and sea, and eventually the hostile fleet was forced to withdraw. But they weren't going home. The hulls of their longships still had room, and so the pirates turned their sails, and they headed for Essex. And just like Sandwich, they ravaged the land unopposed, stripping it bare. Next, the fleet headed to Flanders, to the lands governed by the king's cousin, Count Baldwin, the lands that had been harboring many of the members of court who'd been exiled by the king himself. And once the fleet arrived... They unloaded their plunder, went to market, and sold it. Baldwin was already embroiled in a conflict with the Holy Roman Emperor, and his lands were dangerously close to Vikinger waters. Furthermore, it doesn't appear that he was all that concerned about his cousin's situation in England. So, might as well make money off this whole thing. And that's what they did. And from our vantage point, we can see how all this happened and why. But imagine that you're some lesser noble living in England in 1048. It had been decades since England had seen Viking activity like this. The last time something this bad happened, Edward's father, Athelred Unred, was sitting on the throne. And now that the House of Wessex had been restored, it only took about five years before the bad old days had returned. And God, it seemed, was once again sending armies of pagans to show his displeasure. I can't imagine this helped Edward's position in court. He was already in a weakened position relative to his chief counselor, Earl Godwin. But speaking of that chief counselor, back across the sea, his son, Swain Godwinson, was in Denmark. He was up to something. But we don't know exactly what Swain was up to. Now, there was a war between Norway and Denmark, and despite his many faults, Swain was an experienced commander. And his cousin, Swain Estrasen, was the king of Denmark. So, we can make some guesses as to how he spent his time up there. But this was Swain Godwinson. And at some point, something happened. 
and King Swain Ethresen was so upset about it, he expelled him from Denmark. Now, given that this guy had a history of launching his own treasonous wars, sexing up nuns, and telling kings where they could shove their piety, my guess is whatever Swain was up to was pretty juicy. Unfortunately, no one's telling us exactly what that was. Though whatever he did must have been bad, because now even his own family members were kicking him out. But you know how the old saying goes, fortune favors the bastards. And right when Swain Godwinson's situation seemed hopeless, continental politics shifted again. To the south, in the Holy Roman Empire, things hadn't been going all that great. Lotharingia was in an all-out rebellion, and this was placing the rule of Emperor Henry III under a hell of a lot of strain. And Lotharingia wasn't alone. It turned out that Count Baldwin of Flanders, King Edward's cousin, had been dipping his toes into that conflict. So the emperor sent a messenger to King Edward, asking for his help, because he knew that Count Baldwin V was already on Edward's list for turning Flanders into a halfway house for the enemies of the English crown. And Edward took one look at that request and prepared a fleet. And my guess is that Swain Godwinson knew about this, because the emperor had also reached out to Swain Estherson, the king of Denmark. Count Baldwin had trouble coming his way. But one Baldwin's trouble is another Swain's opportunity. And Swain's time in Denmark had served him well. So well, in fact, that now, rather than just being the exiled fail son of the Earl of Wessex, he had become the exiled fail son of the Earl of Wessex, who was also commanding a fleet of seven ships. And as Swain's luck would have it, all of a sudden, England needed ships. So Swain ordered his fleet to set sail for Bosham Harbor in Sussex, which was one of his family's estates. At last, he was going home. Now, we don't know exactly what happened when he arrived. We don't know anything about what his father, Earl Godwin of Wessex, thought about this. But somehow, after landing, Swain Godwinson, despite being an exiled outlaw, managed to gain the king's protection. He could now be in England without fear of being, you know killed or something. And King Edward must have been in the mood for reconciliation, because he also promised that he would restore Swain to his former position. Meaning that all the lands, all the titles, and all the rights of succession were being returned to him. To Swain. That Swain. Now, once again, we're not told what Godwin thought about this, but we are told what Harold Godwinson thought. He was mad. Not only was Swain an embarrassment who brought his family nothing but headaches, but he was also the eldest son, which made him the heir to the Earldom of Wessex, and probably the heir to the top position in the King's Witan. Or at least he had been, until he dragged England into a war, stole a nun, and gave everyone the finger. That whole fiasco had changed everything, and it had all meant that Harold became the heir apparent. And he also acquired a good amount of his older brother's lands which, you have to admit, was pretty awesome for Harold. And it was also, honestly, the right choice. Harold was a much more sensible noble. And you can tell this because when we hear about his exploits, it doesn't sound like an article in Gawker. But then you have Swain, who somehow managed to get himself exiled despite the fact that his dad was the most powerful member of the Witan. And then since getting exiled, 
he'd been further exiled from not one, but two other territories. Swain was a goddamn mess. And now the king was letting him back in? Not only that, but he was taking all these lands and titles from Harold and giving them back? Oh, hell no. And the Chronicle tells us that Harold brought this issue to the king and told Edward that his brother wasn't worthy of any of this and that the king was making a serious mistake. Harold wasn't alone either. He was joined by his cousin, Bjorn Estrithson, the brother of King Swain Estrithson of Denmark. And Bjorn backed his cousin up, telling the king that Swain Godwinson was a holy hot mess and Edward didn't want any part of that. But once again, the Chronicle is silent on the position of Godwin himself. We also aren't told what, if anything, Swain Godwinson said in response to getting dragged by his own brother and cousin. But it looks like Harold and Bjorn's comments were enough to make Edward think twice about what price he was willing to pay for merely seven ships. And so the king reversed his position and told Swain Godwinson to gather his fleet and leave. Again. But Swain was lucky. So lucky, in fact, that I'm sure he was starting to think that he was the main character in this story. Because right when he was given his walking papers, disaster struck. And suddenly, the whole court's attention was elsewhere. You see, it turned out that while England was caught up in the Godwin family drama, the King of Gwent was making a comeback. He'd struck an alliance with a group of Irish raiders, and precisely as Swain was learning that his older brother and cousin hated his guts, a combined fleet of Irish and Welsh ships started ravaging their way up the Severn. This was catastrophic, and everything that was happening in court would have to wait. The king dispatched the fleet of Wessex to counter the raiders, and it was a big enough problem that he wanted his highest-ranked nobles handling the issue. So, while I'm sure that the king would have preferred to have Swain escorted out of England by his father and extended family members, that just wasn't feasible. Instead, Swain was put on the honor system and told that he had to promise to leave within four days. And on the strength of that pinky swear, the king and his inner council turned their backs on Swain and went to work. Harold Godwinson and his younger brother, Tostig, took command of two of the king's personal ships and their father, Earl Godwin, took command of the rest of the fleet's 42 vessels. The whole court appears to have been involved in this counterattack, including even Bjorn Estrithson. Meanwhile, King Edward headed to Sandwich, presumably to link up with the fleet which was already gathering to support Emperor Henry III in his fight with Count Baldwin of Flanders. But obviously that fight was going to have to wait. The English Navy was being fully mobilized to counter the Irish-Welsh threat. But there are signs of a problem shortly after the mustering, because we're told that Harold was removed from his command of the king's ship. And we're not told why, but considering Harold's opposition to his brother, my guess is there were some concerns that if Harold and the rest of the family were in the West, Swain might take the opportunity to get some strike back on family properties, or perhaps even royal properties. I mean, this was Swain Godwinson. So Harold was out, but Godwin, Tostig, Bjorn, and fully 44 ships headed west, ready to crush the forces of Gwent and Ireland. And they were immediately overtaken by bad weather. 
This weather was so bad, in fact, that the entire fleet was forced to shelter at Pevensey and just hold there, while, I assume, the forces of Gwent and Ireland continued their raid unopposed. Which was bad luck. At least bad luck for the people along the Severn. For Swain Godwinson, though, this was great. It meant that his father, brother, and cousin were harbored only about a day's ride away from where his own ships were stationed. So Swain headed for Pevensey. And meanwhile, Godwin, Bjorn, and Tostig, along with their crews, just waited for the weather to turn. There wasn't much else they could do. So maybe they passed time playing Neftafel or something. I don't know. But after two days, Swain arrived at their camp. And once again... Swain's cosmic luck was with him, because his brother, Harold Godwinson, had been held back, and as such, he wasn't with the fleet at Pevensey. So the only person present at the encampment who had openly opposed Swain's return to court was his cousin, Bjorn. So, Swain presented himself to the fleet and requested a meeting with his father. And while Earl Godwin agreed, he did bring Bjorn with him, which had to have been a bit awkward. Now, we don't have a description of this meeting in the record, but Swain knew that the king was at Sandwich, only about a day's ride from Pevensey. And we also know that Swain still wanted his lands and titles back. So he begged his father and cousin to support his claims and ask the king to reinstate him. And eventually, Bjorn agreed to ride with Swain to help him reconcile with King Edward. Now, we don't know why he agreed to this, some historians argue that Bjorn might have felt remorseful for helping disinherit his cousin, and so he was trying to make up for it. But I think that's unlikely. Moving from pro-exile to pro-reconciliation in a matter of days is a dramatic shift in opinion, especially considering how serious exile was. And we also know there is likely bad blood between Swain Godwinson and Bjorn's brother, the King of Denmark over whatever Swain did to get his ass exiled out of the Scandinavian kingdom. So I just find it hard to believe that Bjorn would have switched his stance because he felt guilty or something. I think this was likely political. I mean, Godwin was one of the most powerful figures in England, likely actually the most powerful. And here he was meeting with Swain, who was under royal orders to GTFO. And now, after that meeting, rather than being put on a ship and pushed out to sea... Swain was being given leave to ride to have a meeting with the king. So I have to assume that this was all happening with Godwin's blessing. And so it's possible that rather than Bjorn reversing his position out of remorse, he was following orders, Godwin's orders, which he would have been duty and honor bound to follow. And because Godwin still needed to command his fleet and deal with the raiders in the West, and also Harold was elsewhere and Tostig was commanding one of the king's ships, that left Bjorn Estrasen to play babysitter. We don't know for sure, but that's what makes the most sense to me, and it would explain why Bjorn rode out with Swain accompanied by only three of his own retainers. I suspect that Godwin was defending his son, and Bjorn was doing his duty and trusting his liege's judgment, which might not have been the best move here, because this was Swain Godwinson. But Bjorn and his three companions joined with Swain's company, and they began riding down the road. And after a while, Swain ordered the company to halt, and told Bjorn that they were actually going to need to make a detour. 
You see, Swain's ships were still stationed at Bosham, and he really needed to get back to them. Now, Bjorn was no idiot. He knew that Swain was sketchy, and thanks to Bjorn's recent intervention at court, he also knew that he was high on Swain's shit list. So Bjorn refused, and he stressed that they were under orders to meet with the king, so they couldn't take any detours. Swain asked his cousin to reconsider, and he told them that unless they got back to his ships right away, there was a risk that his crew would just sail off on their own. The king had been pretty clear that he had four days to leave England, after all. Hell, his ships might be gone already. And if they departed, how was he supposed to leave England, assuming that the king still wanted him gone? And Bjorn had to admit, that was a good point. So he agreed to accompany his cousin to Bosham. As they arrived at the harbor, it must have been quite a relief to see that the ships were still there. So now, all Swain would need to do is tell the crews to hold their position, and then they could get back to the task at hand, meeting with King Edward. So the two cousins headed to the shore, where they could meet with the seamen. And once they were there, Swain had an idea. Why don't they go aboard? His ships were well provisioned, they could no doubt travel to the king much quicker than going on horseback, and who doesn't like sailing? Come on, let's go aboard. And maybe it was the way his cousin was looking at him. Or maybe it was the sight of this crew of scoundrels that were milling around the shore. But something gave Bjorn the heebie-jeebies. And he refused. But Swain and his company weren't going to take no for an answer. A fight broke out. And Bjorn was badly outnumbered, having only three men there who were loyal to him. So Bjorn was quickly captured and tied up. They then threw the struggling noble into a boat rode it out to Swain's fleet, and headed west, away from the fleets of Godwin and King Edward, and towards Exmouth. And then, at some point during the voyage, they killed Bjorn, went ashore, and buried his corpse at a church. And I've had to sit with this record for a while, and it just doesn't make any sense. Why kill a high noble, a member of court, and your own family, right as he was leading you back to have your lands and titles restored? Why blow it like this? Was it just revenge? Because if that's the case, then why did they take the time to have Bjorn buried at a church? I mean, if you're out for blood, why not just cut his throat and push him overboard? Hell, why engage in all the subterfuge to get him on the ships in the first place? It's so weird. Now, of course, we don't have Swain's account of what happened, so all we can do is guess. But just like the illegal honeymoon with that abbess, I can almost see the outline of a plan here. The sort of plan that a stupid man would make and then fail at it, obviously. But a plan. Now this is just my guess, and historians, being responsible, tend to just give us the events and leave it at that. But let's entertain a possibility here. What if the murder of Bjorn had to do with that rebellion in Lotharingia? As we talked about, this rebellion had put Emperor Henry III in conflict with Count Baldwin of Flanders. And that conflict had been bad enough that the emperor had asked England and Denmark to help him out. And while Flanders was fairly powerful and influential, if they ended up at war with Denmark, the Holy Roman Empire, and England all at the same time, well, Baldwin would have had little hope of survival. And then you have Swain. Swain who, while he was on the road, might have realized that this journey to King Edward was a waste of time. 
I mean, it was pretty clear that Edward wasn't holding to his opinions, which would have meant that as soon as Harold got back to court and had a word with the king, there was a very good chance that Swain would have been tossed off the island again. But while this trip to the king was probably pointless, he did have Bjorn with him, a poorly guarded Bjorn, and he was the brother to the king of Denmark, which made him a pretty good hostage if you were, say, Count Baldwin. I mean, that could explain why partway on their journey, they suddenly reversed course and went to Bosham. It also could explain why they went to so much trouble to get him on board the ship. If the plan was to kill him, they could have done that anywhere. But if they wanted a hostage, they would want him on the ship. Now, naturally, if this was the plan, something had to have gone very bad once they got out to sea. Or it's possible that he was wounded in the fight at Bosham and just didn't recover. But this might explain all the subterfuge and also explain why they took the time to give Bjorn a church burial, even though doing so would have left the little fleet of seven ships dangerously exposed. This might have just been a caper that went bad. Now, like I said, this is all just my own personal theory, but I think it's plausible. That failed plan would also explain why as soon as Bjorn was buried, Swain and his fleet went straight to Flanders where they were welcomed by Count Baldwin and granted his protection. But, of course, it is also possible that there was no plan here, and it was just Swain Godwinson being Swain Godwinson. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thepredictionsreepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.